Yes, everything's going to be all right. I hope all's well down in uh, Florida and Georgia here. So far, it looks like things are going okay. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. It's Friday, October 7th, 2016. This week is episode number 433. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and I'm coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. At the controls is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me from Studio C back in McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania, is Cliff the Z-Man Zlotnik. Hello, Cliff. Hey, Joe. Hello, Lisa. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff, and certainly we're going to have you introduce Lisa. This week we've got we welcome Lisa Wagner, the rug chick. We're going to talk about industry education issues. Um, second part of a series Cliff started two weeks back now with Jim Pemberton. So looking forward to that. Before we do, though, we couldn't do the show without our sponsors. So we're going to stop and thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IEQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com. We've got the Healthy Buildings Summit coming up in about 10 days from now, starting in... um, October 20 and 21, so check it out on the website. Before we go any further, though, let's stop and turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. You can either email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for answering last week's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, October 7, 2016, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IEQ Radio Trivia Question. What is the difference between a Persian rug and an Oriental rug. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. By the way, it looks like Doug's on. So, Doug, if you get this one, I've got a really nice prize that I want to mention. Brian Baker, Custom Vac up in Canada, sent us some nice prizes to send out. So we appreciate that, Doug. Or um, Brian, I hope you're doing well. All right. Lisa Wagner is a second-generation rug care expert, and she's the co-owner of Kay Blatchford's San Diego Rug Cleaning and Repair in California. They are nationally recognized specialists in the care of antique and contemporary Oriental, Persian, and hand-woven rugs. Lisa is the rug care columnist for Clean Facts Magazine and the founder of the Textile Pro Program, a specialized hands-on training program for rug and fine fabric care, which she teaches with Jim Pemberton, our guest from two weeks ago. Lisa has been providing online and in-person rug care training for two decades, and in 2006, she was chosen as the Cleaning Industry Person of the Year. Her blog, RugChick.com, is the most visited and referenced rug care educational site on the web. Cliff, I think we have some music for Lisa. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind of like to 
flaunt and take to dinner But she always knows her place She's got style, she's got grace She's a winner She's a lady Hey, Lisa, do we have you on the line? Yes, <laughs> that was great. <laughs> well, that music was from a little before your time, but uh, I thought it was uh, apropos. In I, any event, thank you for joining. Oh, Joe, by the way, uh, Doug snagged that uh, trivia question, so we have to get that gift out to him. Will do. Okay. All right, Cliff, why don't you take the lead today? This is your baby here. Okay, thanks, Joe. This well, type Lisa, of show, that served, is. <laughs> you served as a board member on the IICRC board, but you never took the path of becoming an IICR instructor. And that's kind of unusual because many of the people that are on that board are instructors, and at times the majority of the people are instructors. Uh, why didn't you want to become an instructor? Well, um, in in my case, I... I had some uh, issues with how you needed to teach the test in, in order to meet all the requirements uh, there. And one of them is, is you know, to craft a, a course that was essentially um, teaching a lot of things to memorize in order to, to pass, a at that time, a Scantron test. Uh, I don't know what they're doing now. But um, I, I don't feel that I'm helping... I don't want to teach people what to memorize in order to pass a test. I, I want them to be able to understand what they're doing so that they can be better at their craft. So I, I supported the mission of education being delivered out to the industry, but uh, putting myself in that type of uh, handcuffs in, in my, um, my situation, um, I just didn't want to take that path. And I think that allowed me to stand outside a little bit and kind of take a look at what was being taught and see what was being missed so that some other types of educational opportunities could be developed around that. How did you learn about rugs? Uh, was it all from your mom and, and, and through your family, or did you, you know, reach out and, and take some other courses? Well, I, I'm, I'm a really good student. You know, the, uh, structured learning, for, whether it's, you know, I've, I've been to college, I have a couple degrees, um, I like to sit down, memorize things, and, and take the tests. I'm good at taking mm. tests. Um, but in this kind of craft, there's so much hands-on component and, and just absorbing through doing and, and surrounding yourself um, in the rug industry in particular, just of all the different rugs that you come across on a day-to-day basis. And you almost suck it up by osmosis with the experts around you. So the my learning has been a path of going out and taking as many courses as were available, which 10, 15 years ago was not very many, um, but directly learning from my parents, from experts in our field, and from doing and doing research on your own and just trying to find out you know, who are the areas of expertise in different types of drugs and, and trying to absorb as much as you can. And it's an on going process. I mean, I don't feel that I'm ever going to get to that point where I feel like I know everything. Um, and the market in the rugs itself are changing so dramatically now. It's not a matter of you only learn about the Persian rugs and the hand-knotted rugs. There's so many crazy rugs on the market today that it's constantly evolving, and the education needs to keep up with that. You know, speaking of that, over six years ago, you and Jim Pemberton wrote an article for Clean Facts magazine called Training, Is This the Industry's Weakest Link? What led to the article and what impact did it have at that time? Well, at that time, you know, Jim and I had known each other for a few years, but, but we had actually met in person at an industry event and had the opportunity to sit and, and talk a bit about um, his side of the industry, which fine fabric and and my side with rugs, and we were both kind of bemoaning the fact that there really wasn't um, a place that was developing and collecting 
specialists in those niches to where he felt confident enough or I felt confident enough to say, this person has whichever certification is out there, whether it was ISRC or, or some of the others that were out there, um, and say, because this person holds this, I know that they know what they're doing. Um, a, a lot of the education that was being taught at that time was very basic foundational information, and yet uh, they were getting tagged a, a label and being sent jobs as if they had a, a high level of expertise. And we were talking about, you know, how, how would you even develop a course to where you could truly try to make somebody a specialist uh, in that field? You know, what would it look like? Um, a lot of the uh, IICRC curriculum in, in our particular fields were kind of needing to teach at the lowest common denominator so that you didn't lose anybody and cover the basics, which, of course, are very, very important. Um, but there really wasn't that next level of what do you get beyond that, beyond the basics of the chemistry of cleaning or, or some of the basics of fibers and construction. Um, you know, one so, of the things that the IICRC does that's a little unique in terms of their training model is they have uh, what's called a master, and that's really the highest level that, that one can be within that, uh, within that organization. You could be a master cleaner, you know, a master water damage restorer, master fire damage restorer. And what it really means is not that you have an intense knowledge about the subject, but it means that you've taken the required number of prerequisite courses, you know, such as car, you know, color repair and carpet cleaning and upholstery cleaning and you know, health and safety and, and so on and so forth. And you, know, you might have only had one class in the actual subject in which you've been declared a master. And uh, so I, I can see where the dilemma would be in terms of sending someone out uh, you know, to clean or inspect or you know, answer questions about a high-value uh, textile, for sure. Well, and, and sometimes that's not fair to the student because the student will take a class and feel like, okay, I'm certified, and yet they still have a lot of questions. Right. And there's a lot of gaps, and you feel like you can't ask them because you've taken the test, you've got top score. I remember when I took the carpet cleaning certification course, I don't clean wall-to-wall -wall carpet, but I was having a lot of carpet cleaning companies in, in my area bringing in rugs where it's like I couldn't understand what the heck they were doing to create the problems in front of me. And so I'm like, I need to understand how these guys are being taught and how it's being misapplied into rugs. And when I took the CCT course and passed the test, you know, high marks, I didn't know how to turn on a portable or a truck mount because we didn't even handle any equipment. And yet I was being referred carpet cleaning jobs. <laughs> I'm like, wait, I'm not the one to have you clean your installed carpet. It would be horrible. And you were certified. <laughs> yeah, I think another thing, and Joe's got to follow up in a minute, but another thing is the consistency of education. You know, the IICRC you know, probably has, I think, over 150 instructors. And, uh, you know, let's take water damage, which is probably their most, uh, you know, the course that the most number of people attend. You know, there are a number of ways to be an instructor. You have to go through all this criteria. And, you know, it, it's almost like a, a tough mutter in terms of you know, getting <laughs> electric shock and minefield and uh, so on and so forth in order to qualify because they really put you through the ringer. I mean, it's scary that PhDs that teach college are not qualified to teach IICRC courses. And, you know, they don't well, have... They don't have a single one that's done that. And what happens is these instructors, once they become an instructor, if they want to teach another category, all they need to do is take that course, get a 90% or better on the exam, and they're off and running. Right. Well, and, and uh, when I was on the RUG certification task force that was creating the RUG course for ISCRC, um, uh, that's when you really, at that time, um, with the board we had at that time, um, there was a lot of politics that went into play, too, and where there was only 
one set of instructors who were approved to teach and had a whole year to be able to, to teach it before anybody else could come in and, and offer any kind of competition. And, um, you know, the, the politics, the behind-the-scenes stuff, at least at that time, and I, I'm hoping things are different now because I know they've had a couple um, cleaning of the houses over there. Um, it's, it's a little more... I believe it's a little more open. There's more people teaching that course. But there were certain things where certain test questions where they just understood the answer to not be correct. And, and uh, you know, I, I really didn't want to teach a class where I would ever have to say, this is going to be on the test, so memorize this. But in real world, this is not true, so right. do X. And, I, you know, I had an integrity issue with that. Not saying that anybody teaching that course has any lack of integrity um, because there are some great trainers out there. It's just the model that they're being fit in is, is I think, a little too strict for them to allow to have the optimal teaching experience, in my opinion. Joe, go ahead. Lisa, let me – I have a follow-up on – you know, you went a different path as opposed to teaching the IICRC courses, and I – you know, I've done the same thing, I, and um, – my experience has been that um, I probably would have made a lot more money doing the IICRC version of what I do, but I, well, I'm sure I would have made a lot more money. But I'm wondering if you've had the same experience. Have you had good success in, in going about this in a different way? Uh, yes, actually. And I, I, at least if, if I were to talk as a student um, when I'm going, you know, in, in fields that I'm interested in, like I was mentioning before we started the interview, you know, I, I drove out to Colorado to take a rug dyeing course from Ron Tony, who is an uh, ISCRC instructor. This was not an ISCRC course. This was a hands-on practical course. Um, but he's known as one of the best in the field uh, as an instructor. And that was, uh, it was about $1,500 course uh, for a couple days. And, uh, you know, driving out there and travel and all of that. Spending the money isn't an issue when you're really interested in the craft and, and you want to learn it in a way that you can apply it. Uh, and this is a, a field with a lot of opportunity to, um, you know, have advantage in, in those areas. Uh, so when I taught outside of the structure, um, the price point wasn't, wasn't really a, a particular issue to me because, the one thing that I knew um, th that I had in my favor was that I understood the information in a way, and I, I tend to be very clear when I'm teaching to where people get it, and I can sense when teaching style, when learning styles are different, you need to kind of adjust how you teach them if they're more hands-on learning or need to see it or you need to break things down into steps for them. Um, but, you know, my first course that came out, uh, you know, I, I felt like it should be 10 times the price of the entry one that was being taught at that time, and I priced it at that, and it wasn't an issue. So it actually, from a financial standpoint, it was much more um, profitable to teach it in this way, and I've built much better relationships with uh, everyone who's been through our network, you know, the course that we teach, uh, Jim and I, is a six-month course. It's online and then some hands-on. And we keep together as a community so that we're continuing the education beyond that course. Because my goal wasn't to, uh, my goal wasn't to get them to an ability to pass a test. It was to make sure that not only did they understand what they were doing with textiles, but they could build a successful business and that 10 years from now, I'll still see them in business and they'll be thriving. So it was more a bigger picture. I wanted to see rug businesses established and growing rather than just people getting a better understanding uh, on the rug cleaning process itself. And you, you mentioned... I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it, it does. I, it, to, for the most part... Um, the other question I had, I have two, but let me let me start with this one. Did you have resistance from people that wanted to be certified? I'm assuming you're not certifying these people. Um, did you get resistance from people that wanted to be certified, and how did you overcome that if you did? Well, I mean, with first of all, with everybody that comes through our group, right? Um, 
you know, I tell them to take every single class out there, and I encourage them to take the IICRC courses um, because there's some important basics there. And sometimes when you're learning from a different instructor in a different style, it, it clicks. And, and the goal of the education is to get it to be second nature. Um, you know, with, with our program, we're just trying to, rather than trying to teach them what to think, it's more of trying to teach them how to think as a specialist well. Because when you become an expert in a field, it, it's more of a, you get different gut feelings about things that are really based on practical experience that you've had, other stories that you've gotten from other people, other photos or videos you've seen from other people on the craft, and it's kind of a combination of giving you the right warning signs so that you pause before you jump into that job and ask yourself some extra questions so that you don't create a disaster. And, you know, part of expertise is sometimes just a little bit of research and some patience, not necessarily going, this was the one thing I learned in this course, and it applies in the same way in every single situation. Mm -hmm. um, so I teach them to question things. Now, we have a Textile Pro certification we certify them by them actually doing the work. So it's optional for the group that comes through our network, and they have to submit case studies, and they need to be problem rugs, they need to be natural fiber, they need to either video or photo document from the very first step of when it comes through their facility to when it was finished and it got delivered and the client was happy. Because for me, I want to know that they understand the craft enough to deliver excellent work um, and create a, a long-lasting relationship with the client that they're working with. So for me, it, sitting down and taking a test and choosing answers, um, though that fulfills uh, a need in certain corners of our industry, that's not how I want to um, test somebody's uh, understanding of the craft. I want to see it. So um, that, that's how we do it with, with ours. Interesting. Cliff, go ahead. Okay, Lisa, what would you say are the best methods or ways of learning today? I think it's a combination of multiple channels. Um, you know, we're in a really interesting age now that there's, there's so much digital content. And there's a plus and a minus of that. The plus is that, you know, you can pretty much Google and, and find videos and information on uh, anything you wanted to. Um, the minus is that you don't really have a filter to know who's giving you the right information um, and who's worth spending your time learning from. So there's, there's no ranking of that content on Google except uh, based on their algorithm. And uh, so I, I feel, just my opinion, that uh, if you're able to deliver, if you've got, if I were teaching the IICRC course, and it was a two-day course on whichever subject. I would have pre-study, pre-information that, that teaches them some of the basics, online, video-based, you know, short nuggets of, of content so that they can show up in person and we've all got the same basic level of information that we're starting with, deliver that course, um, but then beyond that have continued online connection that makes sure that what you learned in the class didn't just get forgotten after you took the test um, and put it into action, be able to ask questions, be able to troubleshoot so that you really get an understanding of what that subject matter is. So I think it needs to be a combination of online. There does need, in our industry, I, I think um, in any craft, uh, there needs to be a hands-on component um, but then also that ability to, to have a community. Usually, I mean, in ours it's closed so that we don't have anybody popping in and, and uh, posting their magic solution to whichever stain issue is up there um, so that you can kind of control the level of conversation and, and education. Um, but I, I think that just doing that with a lot of the courses out there would greatly enhance them. Sitting in a classroom and watching PowerPoints has a, some value to it, but there really needs to be some doing in there, too. You know, it was interesting. Uh, I was watching, normally I go to bed early, but last night I was watching the news because I just wanted to see what was going on with the hurricane because 
my niece and my brother down in Florida, and I was oh. kind of worried about where they were and it, you know what the impact was going to be. And there was a story, and I'm not sure whether or not you saw this last night, Joe, but uh, what they did in Pittsburgh is they took in a, an abandoned building, and the uh, emergency response people uh, took this building and they set up a variety of scenarios in this building. Uh, in one room, uh, they, they set up a fire bombing, and they actually had a mannequin in bed. Uh, you know, the the, uh, the arms were tied, and you know, you see this what looks like a burnt body, but you know, it's really a mannequin. But they actually set this room on fire. They went to another room. They set it up as a meth lab, and they had all the different chemicals there. And what was very very interesting is they had the head investigator for the city of Pittsburgh. And he actually went through his training, and he talked about things that he had never seen before or encountered before. And it just, and it just hammers that point home that unless... I, I think there's hands-on training, and I think there's realistic hands-on training. You know, real problems and real decisions that, you know, have to be made and consequences for making those decisions. And I think it's better for the student to make a mistake in class and you know, ruin a, a piece of material that's owned by the school than it is to you know, just go out there and you know, they have a patch and they have a card and they have a, a plaque on their wall that says that they know what they're doing. And, I mean, these people are you know, cleaning up everything from death scene situations to, you know, mold remediation to, uh, you know, dealing with hazardous, uh, you know, biological uh, right. microbes and so on and so forth. It's, it's just pretty scary. Well, I think especially in, in the fields of restoration and in your side of the, the business, I mean, we, we get some scary in rugs, but the scary is mostly chronic pet contamination. <laughs> the scariest that you're going to buy the rug, right? I mean... Well, yeah. No, if you, if you bleed it, yeah, that, that's, true as, that's true as well. I mean, one thing that, that we do do when we're doing the hands-on uh, part of our class is throw in real orders in there with permission from the, uh, from the owners of them. Um, and, you know, and I'll send a call out to, to my list and say, you know, we're going to be doing a wash training workshop. We're looking for really dirty rugs, chronic problems, um, and, uh, and, and allow them to be, to be uh, teaching items uh, for team teaching. And, you know, I want them to be able to see a rug that with the choice of the team, uh, it didn't, you know, the dyes didn't hold and, and you have a, a, a rug bleeding in front of you and what do you do in that instance? Because you can tell them that in writing, but until they experience it, um, they won't have the familiarity of, of how to jump on it and how to handle it. And that, that doesn't do them any good if they know what to do, but they, they haven't done it. So, um, you know, I'll never forget, you know, many years ago, this is probably in the mid-70s, early 80s, we used to do the on-location carpet cleaning for the largest in-plant uh, rug cleaner in Pittsburgh. We had a relationship for, for many, many years. And in return, we gave them all the loose rugs that, that we would encounter. And in addition, we, we recommended them. And, I mean, they used to do, they used to clean the rug, they used to actually clean the rugs that were on the U.S. Air, aircraft and so on and so forth. But I remember taking them a rug which, had a Navajo pattern on it. Um, I think that it was uh, probably a cotton rug. I remember the colors of it. It had this Navajo pattern. The original colors were white and gray and black and brown. And when they ran it through their MRSA machine, uh, they actually pulled some of the black uh, dye, you know, into the, into into the you know into the adjacent colors. Right. I remember him telling me, oh, I can fix this, you know, no problem. And I remember watching him, uh, he takes out his, uh, his scrubber, shampoo machine, and he puts this purple substance in there. I don't remember whether it was a reducing agent or, or what. I remember it was made by streets. He shampoos this rug. He runs it through the MRSA again. 
and the only color that stayed the same was the white. The white remained the same. Uh, now it came out. It was pink. It was blue, <laughs> white, and we ended up buying it, and I ended up putting it in one of my kids' rooms. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that That is how most rug cleaners end up being collectors. You, you end up having all of these rugs that... Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember that story. That that went south, and now I own that. <laughs> you know, Lisa, earlier you said that the rug cleaning industry has changed a lot here recently. Can you expand on that, you know, a little bit on that? Can you tell us a little bit more about those of us that aren't in that area? What What's changed with respect to rugs and rug cleaning? Well, you know, we're in the midst of some really big, uh, trend changes and and you know I, I have a lot of communication with with various rug cleaners around the the world just to kind of see if this is playing out everywhere because this is what we're seeing in Southern California um, and I'm I'm trying to wrap my arms around it because I I feel like it's my responsibility to be able to kind of see where I believe the market is heading and how do I best support those in this industry for possibly making some uh, changes in, in the way they run their business or communicate to their, their marketplace. So we've got a couple things going on right now. One is there's an immense amount of machine-loomed synthetic product that's, that's uh, being sold right now online and in any of the rug shops that are still physically brick-and-mortar out there because a lot of them are out of business. Um, so there's a lot of cheap product out there. There's a lot of fake product out there. So a lot of artificial silk that's being sold um, from the design houses and presented as quality due to the high price tag, um, but is some of the worst fibers out there. For example, viscose, banana silk, bamboo silk, those are all rayon fibers being presented as silk, and their stability and the problems associated with them are huge. Hmm. We've also got some... uh, Rugs coming out that are said, said that they're handmade, but they're hand-loomed. It's kind of a cross between using a, a looming machine and some hands are on it in order to craft this and present it. Um, I just wrote an article on Clean Facts and put a lot of photos in it so that the readers in the magazine can understand how to inspect for this because these rugs, um, a good percentage of them, if they get wet, or vacuumed in certain ways, or wands used on them, they can literally structurally fall apart, and then that becomes the fault of the cleaner. Um, so, and we're seeing a movement away from Persian rugs and traditional styled rugs, and trending more towards shags and more modern designs. Um, and I honestly don't know what is going to be happening with hand knotted uh, collectible side of the market. Um, because I'm seeing a lot of our customers moving towards a little more modern and trying to figure out what to do with these rugs that were made to last 100, 200 years old, but they can't find anyone who wants to buy them. Um, nobody's taking them on consignment, and uh, the embargo's been lifted in Iran, so I'm assuming we're going to get more of them over here. And uh, I, I don't know if that part of the industry is just going to become a very small specialty niche, but training in the rug care field needs to expand for all these other decorator products that are, you know, inundating the market right now. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. I've got a comment that I'd like to jump in with, Joe. I was talking about this fellow that we used to do the the rug cleaning for, and it was Northside Carpet Cleaning, and it was a, a facility that was fully automated. And, you know, what would happen is, you know, you would come in, uh, they would, uh, take this rug, they would hose it down with water, and they would run it through a machine, uh, essentially a washing machine, a vertical, you know, a vertical, I get those horizontal, and, uh, you know, the rug gets washed, the rug gets rinsed, uh, the rug would get picked up uh, on a pole, taken into a dry room. These, uh, run, this, this plant was set up to run 24 hours a day. So it took about an eight-hour cycle for that rug to go from dirty to completely clean and dry. It would fall down at the other end of the plant, and they would wrap it up on a machine, and, and it would be done. So this plant was probably built maybe in the 1940s, 
you know, today it would probably be over a million dollars to, uh, you know, to, to build that. To, to yeah. build that. And the companies that made these machines, uh, and there was a whole market that was supported because, I, I, you know, we started out with hardwood floors and we put loose rugs on them. And then we went to wall to wall and the market shifted that way. So a lot of the rug plants suffered, you know, when we went to wall to wall. And I think one of the big changes was really, you know, she, she talked about Ron Tony, and there was a guy named Phil Ozzarell from, from Colorado. And, and what they did is they made it uh, simple and affordable for people to get into the, the, the craft cleaning of, uh, you know, of oriental rugs and, and other types of loose rugs. And you could actually build this in your two-car garage. That's about all the space that you actually needed. And they actually had them where they were inflatable. So, you know, with air, so you could inflate it, deflate it, and so on and so forth. And I think that, to me, was was really monumental, and that put a lot of people into the business because now you didn't need uh, a million-dollar uh, investment. You know, you could do it with a, a much smaller investment. And, you know, to me, uh, that's what got us into it. And I'll, I'll tell you, I probably have done a few things in my life that I found as therapeutic is uh, is cleaning rugs. I mean, I, I found it very, very relaxing, very, very therapeutic. Hmm. Well, and it gives you a great before and after. So, I mean, it, it's great to see something come in filthy and it's wool, and you know it's gonna it's gonna pop and be a while when it's clean. Right. Um, you don't really get that with synthetic, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, yeah, the wow factor is important. <laughs> hey, we've got to uh, break and thank our sponsors. We're going to our halftime. We'll be right back with the second half of our interview with Lisa Wagner, the rug chick. Stick around. We'll be right back. And thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. The Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. And Particles Plus. They are engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at their website, jondon.com. That's jondon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts.com with an X.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, first half ran a little long, but we're back for the second half of our interview with Lisa Wagner. Cliff, let me turn it over to you. Thanks, Joe. Lisa, if you had a magic wand and could change the IICRC teaching model, what would you do? You know, I, I, I would do what I mentioned before, which is, you know, take those classes, um, add some online components, uh, have the be in person, the actual hands-on, actually doing the work, um, and keeping that community afterwards. Because I, I, I know that the model, the way it's being taught is you need to try to get as many people through it to take the test, to pay the fees, to support, 
you know, the infrastructure of, of the group. Um, I, if I had a magic wand, I'd want the focus to be a little bit more on uh, actually crafting some of the best, at least on the cleaning side, uh, cleaners out there in those industries. And I think that that's, that's a more expanded, more in-depth um, teaching uh, model. Um, I also, you know, consumers have no idea that these organizations exist. Um, it, it would be nice if, if there could be a, a little bit more uh, marketing understanding in order to go out there and reach the consumer and actually give them reasons why they should be uh, picking based on the education that the company in front of them has. You know, when you talk about these, um, this hands-on training using this IICRC model, on a regional level, what's your vision for that? I think it needs to actually be in facilities that are that are in that field. Um, that'd be the most realistic hands-on experience, you know. And it, and it has some advantages to it. At least, and I'm, I can only speak from the rug side because it's that's twenty-four-seven what I live. Um, so bringing them to a facility like mine, we, we just taught the last textile pro team here in my facility, they can see how it's all laid out, what our processes are, how the workflow goes through. They can see actual rugs that are coming in from homes today and what they look like, how we communicate um, with the customers, how we photo document and how we you know go through our systems. Um, and they have the ability to work with various different equipment, different solutions, and, and get to learn different ways of how to do it. We actually this last time set up to where we had our wash floor, where we ha- were having teams wash on the wash floor, but then we brought in some new equipment um, from, uh, the, there's some new extraction equipment called rug sucker, and uh, it's kind of a more of a portable type of, of cleaning setup. Um, and actually set that whole system up so that everybody could have the opportunity to clean rugs through two different types of processes and get a sense for what actually would be ideal for their own facility back home. Um, You know, if these guys are starting up, they can't have 10,000 square feet like we have here. Um, You know, so they need to think about what's smart for uh, the volume they have, the capital they have, and where they're at in their rug training. And... um, and most importantly, not staging something to clean, but giving them real dirt, real rugs, and, and allowing them to, to go through all those steps. Where would you get all the stuff for them to clean? Well, for me, I mean, I, what, what I did was I sent a message out to, you know, we're always getting inquiries of, of people that are bringing rugs in, and they're like, you know, I, I don't know if it's worth paying X because, you know, I'm going to be paying you to save this rug more than what I paid for the rug. We see that a lot with these new cheaper rugs that are coming on the market. Um, If it's that time of year, I'll tell them, you know what, if you let this piece be a teaching piece, we will clean it for free. Um, And, you know, we qualify that, you know, some people will be learning on your piece, so there might be a chance of X, Y, or Z happening get the release signed, and then you've, you've got real rugs that, that they can teach with. Um, and then I can go through my client list and kind of see what would be, you know, it's been three years since Mrs. Jones has sent in these pieces. I think these would be great for them to see uh, washed. And then you bring in some specialty ones. And what we do is we just offer to, to do the cleaning for free. And, and it allows me as a company then to turn around and send photos and share the story with my list of, hey, you know, we brought these people in from all over. They flew in from Australia, from all over the U.S. Uh, to take this course uh, from Canada, and they were actually washing, and we were training. We're one of the few rug wash uh, courses that happens in the U.S., and so it allows me also some publicity with my own list. Joe? Lisa, I'm, I'm wondering, I think... Anybody that does education realizes that the model at IICRC is not, you know, it could certainly be improved. And and adding an online component and much more hands-on, certainly, I don't think anybody would argue 
that that's not the way to go. I, I think no question what you're saying is the way to go. Why do you think that is not happening? I have my own opinion. I've been on the board for almost three years now. I'm leaving, um, thank goodness, very soon. And I'm wondering, what, what, why do you think that hasn't happened? I, I don't know about the current situation, and and I don't I don't want to have this be you know 100% IICRC bashing coming from me, um, because I think that it, it fills an important role of of delivering foundational training in their prospective fields. I just I, I never looked at any of their courses as advanced courses, and and when they started moving into that. Um, you know, I, I had some problems with that because, at least in my field, it, 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 I didn't think that it was. It wouldn't have been the way I would have done it. Um, but I also had some issues with the ASCR training at the time. Though the course that I took with them was fabulous, um, it was so specific with rug identification. It really didn't get into cleaning and kind of the practical setup of the business. So it was almost a little too specific, and. You know, when I sat on their board, I'm like, you know, we need something that's a little bit in between. We're going to run out of really specialized rug cleaners from old plants uh, in the States as the younger generations decide that they're not going to carry on the business. Um, You know, we need something that can help support them and get to that point where they don't feel like they're never going to be able to attain that specialized designation on that path. There wasn't anything in the middle there. when I was on the IICRC board, and I was on there twice, and then I resigned, um, I, I, I'm a big believer that you shouldn't criticize something that you're not willing to step into and work at. And so I, I gave it a shot on my end, and I, I think that the biggest uh, barrier at, at that time was the politics. Um, and also the fact that there was a lot of money being generated, and there were some people who were benefiting from that money generation and when you've got a financial little bit of benefit in there um, you're going to be more motivated to want to keep things the way they are and there were a couple players at that time who believed that the infighting and the chaos was going to be to their benefit to keep things status quo Mm -hmm. so back when I was on the board which was about 10 years ago um, I was on the e-media uh, committee with Lee Pemberton um, and worked with him at, at that time. Uh, and I know back then we were clamoring to do online training. And yet, I, I don't even know if they have any ISRC certification courses that that are uh, online today. No. It's, it's been a long time. <laughs> no, they have so. nothing. And there's nothing along those lines, and, and it, it's not going anywhere that I can see at this point, maybe in the future. But I think you hit it on the head. I mean, it's it's money, and um, there's there's too many people that do well the way things are right now, and um, you know they they're not interested in seeing a change. And then you got the politics as well. So I, I think you hit it right on the head. And the only way you're going to stop that is to get people in that aren't making money teaching courses or sponsoring courses or whatever at this point in time you're, you're just never going to get people to agree to make these changes when they're in you know the most of the board are instructors and uh that's very well, frustrating I mean, that that also puts a lot of um uh, a lot on the shoulders of the people who do go in there and are volunteers and are, are trying to make change and uh, then you know once you get anybody in there who actually follows through with what they say they're going to do you get a lot of other people dumping stuff on them to, to you know, because they're a proven workhorse, and you, and you kind of exhaust the uh, patience and the, and the energy of, of the people who are sometimes the, the best ones in that, in that mix. Um, the ones that aren't in there for the money, they're in there because they, they truly want to better the industry and, and see some uh, changes in those areas. And there are some phenomenal people who are connected with that organization and it it is um, when I left I I know it was it was really disheartening to see some of the people who were fighting the good fight constantly and yet there wasn't any progress being made and it it almost mirrors what's happening in Washington you know you're looking at a system that's broken it's better than nothing but you know 
how do you fix something that's that's that and tangled I think up? You're, you're, <laughs> you're dead right there in that there are really good people. And I, I think they're all good people. I mean, I, I haven't run into, you know, maybe a few that are there just to further their own self-interest. But even the people that are, are teaching, I don't think they consciously are stopping these other things from happening. But subconsciously, um, I don't think they realize oftentimes how, I don't know what, the, the conflict. I don't think they realize the conflict of interest. When you're an instructor sitting on a board, you shouldn't be voting on educational issues right. that relate to online training, which is going to hurt you. Or you shouldn't be voting. I've, I had to battle for two years just to get them to agree not to let instructors vote on new instructors that were going to be competing with them. It was like they just didn't see yeah. why that was a problem. Yeah, no, conflicts of interest were, were big issues when I was in there, too. I think that was one of the th- re- another reason why I, I didn't take that path for training. It was because I, I could see other instructors who were great instructors who would hold their tongue on issues because they were worried about things getting mucked up with the grading of their tests or scheduling and you know that's their livelihood and so a lot of times to not rock the boat is what you should do for being responsible for your company um and so not being tied to a school was was uh you know allowed me to shoot my mouth for for better (laughs) or for worse (laughs) i'm wondering what what do you think about um people being certified after taking a one two or three day class I I have a problem with that because, to me, certification applies a a level of understanding and expertise. Um, I think it's important to take the courses, but I I think that certification should be tied to a longer path of of showing that you're putting what you've learned into action successfully and that you understand um, how to think in that field. Um, So, I mean, I don't I don't look down on anybody who has the certifications, and I have some of them myself. But uh, I, being perfectly honest with some of the ones that I have, I, I can't say that because of that certification, I know I'm an expert in that field. I, that's just not the case. And Cliff, I have one more follow-up, but if you, you want to go ahead and jump in. Yeah, I have a couple comments, I think, on the instructor situation there. I think, number one, no one there knows any better. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, they kind of created their own system. You know, they didn't have an educational system that, you know, to model after. They just started one. And what they started uh, has never really changed. And the people that were involved early, uh, you know, obtained the power, you know, both politically and uh became relied upon because they were willing to do the work, um, you know, I think had an opportunity to steer, um, you know, the path of the organization. You know, they have two awards for instructors. They have one which is called Instructor of the Year. And that is not for the instructor voted by their students as Instructor of the Year. That's strictly for the instructor who push the most certifications through. He's instructor of the year. They have another award for the Iron Man. And that's the person that taught the most courses per year. So it's really not about quality as much as it's about quantity. And I, I think like in the American educational system, which I believe is, is broken, uh, one of the things that's broken it is really the teachers' unions. They become very, very strong. They're politically active. And I think the same thing that happens within the IICRC. It's almost as though there's an instructor's union there that's politically active that, you know, self-protects itself. So, you know, we want to vote on our competition. You know, we want to know who's coming through the gate. Uh, you know, we want to make it as hard as possible uh, the IICRC has no sunshine policy at all. There's never a rule or a regulation that goes away. They just keep adding more to it, like we do in the United States with gun laws. You know, we, they don't enforce the ones that are there. They just want to, you know, continue to uh, add more of them. So I, I think that the 
people that make a living doing this, and it is something that, you know, if someone is older and, you know, wants to retire, you know, they can make an okay living, a very good living, actually, you know, going all over the world in many situations, you know, teaching these classes. You know, they, they get a daily rate for doing it. Some of them have their own school, so, you know, they get to keep all the money. And, uh, you know, I don't think they want anything to interfere with that. Uh, let me, well, you know, it's almost, ahead, uh, it's almost this, oh, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. No, no, I, I was just going to turn it over to you anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, it's almost the same kind of challenge that you get in a multi-generational business. You know, there's a certain point where the, the founder and the, the first ones who, who built it um, hit a ceiling, and then it's, you know, the second or the third generation where, you know, you you've gotten to the point where this is as best as it's ever going to get. You need to start doing a little creative destruction and, and try to move up to the, to the next level. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan on rewarding based on quantity over quality. I, I would really like to see the focus be a little more on um, what are these students doing after the class. And one of the things that, that Jim Pemberton and I discussed before we, um, started uh, teaching our program, which you know was a result of the article we came out and kind of laid out where we saw the weaknesses in the present day training were and and we got a, a lot of flack from that. Um, we got a lot of positive comments from the students saying you know you 're calling it out as it is, and flack from instructors at that time who who thought that you know we had crossed a really big line and and you know I got a ton of hate mail. Um, and, and a lot of calls to, well, if, if you think that you know what's best, why don't you build something that, that you think will do better? And that was, that was the seed that, that planted uh, Jim and I sitting down, okay, if we were going to do something, what would it look like? And implement it and get it up. And now we've had 160 uh, different companies that are part of the network that uh, have been through the program. Um, but But the goal was always to try to, to develop and, and support the growing businesses uh, that are going to serve best the consumers out there. And that's where I think the, the focus has kind of uh, gotten away from is, you know, it's, it's a, the bureaucratic model is, is focused on fees and numbers, and you need to be profitable. That's not a, you know, a question because you need to stay in business. But uh, I, I'm I would like to see more of the thinking outside of the box and have them bring in uh, some of the younger generation in our fields to try to get more tech savvy. And uh, edu- there's just so many opportunities out there that would bring down the cost of education for people to get it, to make it online so that more people have access to it, and to better the industry as a whole as opposed to just one small sliver of it. Cliff, I've got a question. Running low on time, so let's make you, these last questions. Yeah, this is my last one. How do you do? You see a difference in your training between how you train someone who may be the founder of the business, and then how you train their millennial children in the same class. You know, I, because it, it, at least with our program, it's over such a wide expanse of time because it's six months of interaction. There's weekly online modules that are delivered. There's the the workshop itself where it's all hands-on for three days. Um, and then we move into operational systems and, and business and marketing and how to communicate with and find the consumers and, and build your business. Um, so... I tend to find that the millennials consume the online uh, rapidly and thoroughly, and they go through uh, structurally on time. <laughs> the owners uh, seem more interested in coming and, and taking part of the hands-on, bringing their key people with them, um, and, and enjoy the engagement of, of the community coming in. This last time when we taught, we brought in alumni from past teams uh, so that we could put some alumni in the mix with, with the teams of some that were brand new to the craft and, and some that have been doing it for a while but want more uh, structure on, on how to, uh, you know, better their skills. And so it, it allowed an opportunity for people to, to lead and to chime in on their own expertise. Um, I, I've never been a teacher that says, I know everything and just 
implement what I tell you. Um, I'm always telling them that I'm still learning and teach me something that I don't know. Let's try things. Let's take ideas that pop up and give it a whirl. Um, and we're thinking on our feet and we're, and we're discovering things as a team. So it's a very open uh, educational experience. Lisa, I have one final question, a little off of the education uh, topic, but still I want you to help me um, leave listeners, especially those that may be not, you know, we're not experts on rug and carpet. What tips would you give people like, like myself? I'm not an expert on rug or carpet or my engineer here, John, you got to have faith. Say I'm going out and looking for a, a rug and I want to uh, put a new rug in on top of a hardwood floor or something like that. What do I stay away from? Uh, it sounds like maybe I might want to look into a used rug at this part, point in time because there may be some good deals out there on some quality rugs. But um, tell me what you think are key tips for someone that's looking for a rug. Well, I, I used to tell people when, when they were calling and asking me they're going to go out and shop and they want to know what kind of rugs to focus on. And that's such a, uh, that's such a huge question that, you, you know, you, it, I can't keep them on the phone for an hour to give them all the different. Understood. Different, uh, but so I'll tell them to first look at the back corner of the rug and let's find out if it's woven or let's find out if it's tufted. Um, because if it's woven and you flip over that corner, you'll be able to see the knots and the design very clearly. Uh, if it's tufted or any other type of custom rug, that back is going to be covered up with material. It's going to be glued together with latex adhesive. And at least from a structural standpoint at that point, um, the problem rugs tend to be the ones that are those custom and tufted. Uh, woven, whether it's machine woven or hand woven, is a, you know, has more longevity and, and more structural uh, integrity, especially if it's, if it's made from wool. So if we can at least start there, then, you know, what I do in our area is, is people send me links to what they're looking at, and I'll zoom in and, and uh, see uh, what they're looking at and tell them, you know, the pros and cons of each. That's my blog site, rugchick.com. Um, I'll take some of those key rugs and tell everybody everything they need to know about that rug. So there's one on shag rugs, there's one on jute rugs, viscose rugs, and then they can read through and, and see all the details that they need to know and then can at least be an educated consumer when they, when they buy. Um, I do think the biggest opportunity right now is for, for buying rugs that are being resold, um, though there are, of course, bad rugs that have been woven since uh, World War II from a lot of different countries. Um, there's also a lot of great rugs out there. Uh, and some much older than that that people are downsizing and, and selling. So it's, it's a really great opportunity to be buying right now. It's a horrible time to be reselling your rugs. So a lot of people are giving them away or selling them on Craigslist. Um, so it's a good time to be shopping. I think that's very helpful. And, and it also helped to get your website out. Um, is it just rugchick.com? Yeah, it's R-U-G-C-H-I-C-K. Dot com. Um, that blog started as a, a technical blog for the cleaners because I, you know, I get a lot of the same questions on problems and I wanted to kind of be able to answer a question and allow others to learn from it. But it has completely become a consumer traffic site and um, we get hundreds of thousands of consumers that go to that site on an ongoing basis um, annually. And uh, you know, they're looking for answers, they're looking for rug cleaners they can trust, and they're looking for uh, what kind of rugs they should be buying. So there's definitely interest out there on the consumer standpoint, just not a lot of, of uh, education out there available to them that isn't tied to buy my rugs. So most of the information out there is tied to, you know, of course my rug is the very best, buy it right now. So uh, there's no selling on my site. I'm glad I asked because I think that's an important way to, to wrap things up, although I do want to make sure we give you the last word. Is there anything we missed that you'd like to add or just anything you'd like to add for whatever reason? You know, I, the one thing I just want to I, I, I want to give a shout-out to John Don. John Don, um, when, when uh, I first came out with a, a digital rug course, um, they supported me even though it wasn't going to be an IICRC course. I was just 
getting out of my uh, serving on that board and thought I wanted to put a good educational product out there, and they helped support me do that. Uh, they supported me in doing that, and uh, I heard that they're the marquee sponsor of the show, and it was just wanted to make sure that I put a thank you out to them and also a thank you out to Jim Pemberton, who um, uh, Textile Pro wouldn't have uh, happened without his support. And Jim was really the first one that I really felt like I met somebody who understood the frustrations that I had and wanted to do something about it. So it's been an honor to, to build that with him. And I really appreciate you guys having me on as a guest and all the education that you deliver on an ongoing basis. You really, uh, it, it's great stuff to think about um, every time I hear your episodes. Well, thank you. I much appreciated Lisa Wagner for this week's um, little discussion on on rugs and carpet and industry education, uh, all great stuff. I want to thank Lisa Wagner for joining us. Of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Thanks, Cliff. Another great week. Um, John, you got to have faith at the controls, of course, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, and thanks for the nice note, Doug, um, on the show. Very informative and interesting. Thank you for that, Doug, and uh, you've got a nice prize coming out. Last but not least, next Friday at noon, we've got Bill Bonfleth back on. Uh, Bill is a past president of the uh, ASHRAE organization there, and we're going to talk about a couple papers and recent conventions he's been to. So this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks, and we'll see you next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 